the most important thing is your first two emails are going to be the, the most impactful emails on your entire flow. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to educate a customer that might be skeptical about your product, why this entrepreneur thinks about his online store as a physical retail store, and how it guides his decision-making, and what are trusted voices and how they can be powerful in your marketing. Before we get into our show, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the Shopify App Store. Shopify apps help you easily customize and add features to your store to make it your own. The App Store hosts over 4,000 apps built specifically for Shopify businesses. Shopify developers all over the world built these apps to help you save time and unlock a range of new features, from showing your Instagram feed on your store to offering loyalty rewards and more. Check out shopify.com app store for the latest Shopify apps. Today, I'm joined by Chase Nawalich, Director of E-Commerce and Marketing for PowerDot. PowerDot is the world's smartest muscle recovery and performance tool and started in 2016 based out of San Diego, California and is an eight-figure brand. Welcome, Chase. How's it going, Felix? Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on. So first of all, tell us about the origins of the company because you joined about a year into the beginning of it, but tell us about how the company began. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's company was started in 2016. It was kind of born out of a larger, a larger medical company. Our CEO, our, our now CEO was running the div- a division of that company that was focused on muscle stimulation. And uh, there was just a large emphasis on creating a product that was a little bit more consumer friendly. And so he split off and started that. The, he started PowerDot in 2016. I joined in 2017 as we really started to uh, put an emphasis on e-commerce and expanding our direct-to-consumer footprint. What did the um, the larger companies see? It sounded like was it like a more like a B two B focus at that time? Like what what was the switch? What was the kind of spin off to create PowerDot that was more consumer friendly? Yeah, I you know the 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 company itself was focused on consumers and and the medical market, but really where we saw or where Eric, our CEO, saw um, a significant opportunity was on product development and kind of revolutionizing how uh, how muscle stimulation was was administered, especially to a consumer. So um, the biggest hurdle that there really is in the adoption of muscle stimulation in general is is education. And to dive into a little bit more of the background of the product, we're an app-based muscle stimulator. And so through our mobile application, we're able to provide the consumer with a ton of education. So everything from pad placement to just our newsfeed that has a ton of information on how to use the product. Um, we have 15 different programs that are kind of out-of-the-box programs. Um, so you can think everything from warm up to active recovery to massage, pain relief. Um, there's basically a program for every type of of muscle therapy that you could you could imagine, and then also some workout programs as well. So um, you know we really wanted to create an application that was extremely user friendly and lowered the barrier to entry to uh, allow more and more people to adopt the technology. Got it. I mean, I mentioned that you joined about a year later when you first came onto the company. What were some of the kind of key initiatives and areas of focus that that you particularly wanted to pay attention to when you first joined? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we had we had kind of a distributor network that was set up by our sales director at the time, and and the business was sort of humming along. There was a couple key athletes uh, that were kind of driving the awareness for the business, primarily in the CrossFit space, um, which were, there was already some adoption by the community. And one of the initiatives, really the the main initiative, was to stand up our direct to consumer business in a meaningful way, and then. Um, and, and that focus over the first year was primarily the U.S. market. And so we were already on Shopify at the time. We were just on a basic Shopify account. And I immediately jumped in and really just kind of started at the, you know, the grassroots of the business, just kind of cleaning up, uh, you know, looking at site optimization for conversion rate, cleaning that up a bit, and then looking at some of the basics around um, like newsletter campaigns and um, just setting up some of those flows. And so that was kind of what we initially did over the first, I would say six months. Um, and, and, and luckily with the, with a little effort and a really small team at the time, it was just myself. Um, we were able to create some significant traction and, and the company at that point really took, he kind of pivoted and put a, a, a major focus on our, on our direct to consumer business. Got it. So when you said something earlier about how education was a key component of this, when you do have a a product or you're in a market where there it requires a lot of education, tell us first, like how unaware was the target market? How much education was required? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, our, our, mar- our main market um, at the time, and it still rings true today, uh, they're athletes, right? And so I think at the core, athletes understand the fact that they need to recover in order to continue to perform at the highest level. Um, but they're not necessarily aware of the best ways to to recover or to get the most out of their bodies. And so uh, when you talk when you start to talk about electric muscle stimulation, that people get thrown off by the the electric. Wait, you want to do what? You want to shock my body, um, and that's going to do what for me? And so I think that's the biggest hurdle that you have to get people over in the initial stages. And then beyond that, it's just, how do you use the product, right? It's not, you know, it's not a product that you inherently know, and it's a little daunting. You're sticking electrode pads onto your body and then you're firing electricity into your soft tissue. And at the end of the day, it's actually a very natural way um, to go about it, but it's still something that can kind of put people off or or scare Mm -hmm. people a little bit. And so there was a lot of challenges at the beginning um, to just start to get that adoption and to break through that barrier. And, and luckily we've been able to do that and, you know, both on, both on the, the user side. So once we've actually captured a customer, pushing them down into our app and, and allowing them to explore and be comfortable, but then how do we tell that story before somebody becomes a customer when they haven't seen our app? And, and that's where, um, obviously the direct to consumer side of the business is really important because we have that ability to further educate the customer in in you know, a meaningful way with video content and written content and photos and, you know, landing pages that are dedicated to each different core demo that we, that we're speaking to. So that's why uh, direct to consumer became so important for us. Got it. So when you do have a a a, again, a product or a market that, that might have some confusion or some just kind of, uh, I guess, false perspectives, right? That there's this concern about, oh, what do you want to do? Shock my body? Like this question. How did you know that that was a question or a concern or a confusion on your target customer's mind? Like, How did you discover what kind of questions or areas of confusion that you should focus on from a, an education perspective? Yeah, like I said, you know, uh, part of our team was kind of already in the, 
um, in the industry. And so, and, and the rest of our team that we've built since we're, we're all former athletes and, and still, um, you know, none of us are, um, competitive athletes at this point, but we're definitely kind of the weekend warriors. And so, you know, just, just by generally understanding the market, we were able to identify that that was a, a hesitation for people. And then it was really just about finding ways that made sense to kind of correct that issue. So yeah, I would say primarily mm-hmm. just through market research. Yeah. And one that, 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 that kind of confusion that you talked about is almost like a fear-based confusion where they don't want to, you know, buy something that just seems kind of scary. So for that type of objection to a sale, what's the best remedy to, to make someone comfortable or, or at least reveal the kind of truth about your product? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really just about validation, right? How do you validate a product that people are, are, are fearful of potentially, or they don't, they don't necessarily understand it, um, or, or they might not believe in it in general. Um, you know, one of the common terms that we still deal with today, um, is the term snake oil. And we have tons of clinical research that kind of backs us up. Um, and, and therefore we've able been able to secure an FDA clearance on our product. So, you know, as a type two medical device, the FDA clearance piece was obviously pivotal. Um, you know, that's, that's a stamp of approval on the product. Um, but outside of that, it was really, um, you know, validating the product through athletes and through physicians that have got behind the product and have become ambassadors for the brand. Um, and they're able to speak to and inspire the, the, the next generation or, or the next tier below, below them. Um, which tend to be our consumers. God, it's almost like appealing to authority or people that have this expertise come in and kind of almost co-sign the efficacy of the product. Yeah, and it was really co-signing the efficacy of the product in the way that we market the product. So one of the one of the other issues with muscle stimulation, and there's probably a lot of people listening to this that go, oh yeah, I do know what that is. But if you look at some of the brands that have sold it in the past, it's the, it's, oftentimes packaged as the, you know, six minute abs, right. Or the, the mm-hmm. cheat code to getting fit. And that's absolutely not how we sell this product. Um, there are some, there are some aesthetic benefits to muscle stimulation, but we're primarily focused on muscle recovery and pain relief. And this is a product that's been used for decades for both of those primarily in a clinical setting, whether you're in an athletic training room or at your physical therapist. And we've taken that technology and packaged it to where you can use it at home. And obviously right now with current times where people don't necessarily even have access to getting the massages that they're used to or going to the physical therapist or going to the athletic trainer, if they're, you know, at the collegiate or high school level, or even the professional level access is just very limited right now. And so by creating a product that people could could access similar technology from the comfort of their home, that knocked down a big barrier for us. But then it was just again about validating it, and and we've really done so through uh, you know a list of of athletes that are ambassadors of the brand and and doctors or or uh, physicians that um, additionally are ambassadors to the brand. Got it. I, I'd imagine this is something that you deal with less and less, but for anyone out there that faces these kind of criticisms from from the, the public at large, where they say snake oil or scam, when you have educated someone uh, that is willing to listen, it, it's most likely not, no longer a problem. But when you're you know posting things on social media or your ads are running and people are commenting on it, I'm assuming that must have happened at some point, maybe it still happens today. How do you handle that as a business when 
you believe, obviously you believe in your product, your customers believe in it, but there are people out there that are in the public that are all, you know, often always those skeptical and they're still ready to kind of criticize and disparage the, the, the product or, or the methodology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, obviously often, uh, referred to as trolls, but some of them have valid, yeah. valid concerns. Right. And so I think you're always going to have that as a, as business and, you know, it can, it can be challenging at times, but we really look at it as an opportunity to further educate. And, you know, for every person that asks a question or comments that something's snake oil or they don't believe in it or, or whatever it may be, there's probably five to 10 other people that feel the same exact way that just aren't brave enough or don't want to take the time to ask the question. And so when those questions are posed in the comments of an ad, um, we really look at it as an opportunity to not only educate that person, but educate the other, you know, group of people that may be potentially viewing that ad and, and wondering the same thing. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're happy to mm. jump in and start engaging with those people. Yeah, I think that's an important point because I think often the reaction, especially when you're a newer entrepreneur where this kind of this kind of comment hurts, you're quick to ignore it or delete it. Um, but the, the one thing I've always heard is the best kind of marketing is the one where you can join the conversation that's already happening inside your prospects or potential customers' heads because these are probably common thoughts that are going through people's heads and now you have an opportunity to address it, right? Otherwise, if you deleted it or ignored it, you, you, you lost that opportunity. So I think uh, you touched on a really important point here. So tell us more about how this um, this education journey begins, because you had mentioned that you have the app where there's a lot of education going on, but you also mentioned that you have the website where there's a lot of education going on too, but how do they even begin introduced into wanting to learn more about the product in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a majority of our advertising is done through through social, both on the organic and the paid side. And so we found that to, to your exact point, because it allows the community to engage, we found that as a great way to start that process, right? To make people aware of what we're doing, make people aware that this technology exists. And we've seen that really benefit our brand. So we continued, we continue to do that. We continue to kind of start that journey across social, but um, as the brand has grown, we've really, and obviously as, as our marketing budgets have grown, we've been able to secure strategic partnerships uh, to, to bring awareness to the product as well. And so, uh, you know, ob for obvious reasons, the more awareness that we can bring to the brand um, and get people interested in at least exploring what we have to offer, uh, the, the more ability we have, the better ability that we have to educate those, those customers. Mm. Can you talk to us a little bit about the goals at each of these levels where we, it sounds like you got the, the social element, organic and paid. It's probably the first touch point that a, a prospect has with your, with your brand, with your products. And then once they're kind of on the website, inside your funnel, inside your email list, and then eventually when they become customers and are members of the app, what's the goal at each point, maybe starting off with social, what's the goal of that, that kind of um, interaction with a, a prospect on social first? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess speaking specifically to social, we we use social at every stage of the funnel, and so um, you know we're we're definitely using social as a as a tool to to gain that top of funnel interest, and and then funneling people down through education and and then to conversion. And so you know, if we're speaking specific goals to Facebook advertising, my my optimizations are our optimizations are always set for conversion because we know that we need to bring customers into the brand that. Uh, have a mindset of converting. Um, one of the things, you know, I, we don't need to go too far down the Facebook rabbit hole, but 
one of the things that I think is overlooked by people often, and especially as d- data privacy becomes more and more prominent in, in our industry, allowing Facebook's algorithm to trusting Facebook's algorithm, um, which I know is a hard thing to do, but uh, it's very, very important from my experience to trust them and to allow them to find the customers that they know are right for your brand. And so um, I would say over the last six months, one of the things that we've really done on that front is is pull back a lot of our segmentation um, and go for more of a broad audience appeal at the top of funnel. So we'll, we'll keep it very broad and, and again, always optimizing for conversion and making sure that our content really tells the message that we're trying to get across. And then as we start to drive traffic and some of our middle funnel, bottom funnel campaigns, they obviously are a lot more segmented and a lot more focused on pushing people through that final stage of education and then down into the actual conversion. So you mentioned that you, this is an important point that I want to go over because I think that this is a, a trend that I'm starting to see a lot more kind of savvy online marketers taking, which is to, like you mentioned, trust the Facebook algorithm more. And rather than you going ahead and doing a segmentation on behalf of Facebook, especially top of the funnel, you are putting the control back inside Facebook and going with a broader targeting, but you are now doing your targeting through the creative that you run inside your ads. So tell us more about that. Like, how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the biggest goal of Facebook advertising at the top of funnel, one of the largest goals is to reach more people, right? The more people that you reach, the larger your opportunity is to capture new business. And so, uh, you know, one of the clear set ways to do so is to get our CPMs as low as possible. And so by keeping our audiences very broad and allowing Facebook's algorithm to do the heavy lifting, uh, you know, we, we get better rates like that. And so we're able to reach more people. And as long as our messaging is specific to what our product actually does, and it's not just some clickbait messaging, then we actually get qualified customers. And we know that those people that have clicked in are one, if you're optimizing for conversion, they are people that Facebook has flagged as, as people that buy products online and more importantly, through Facebook. And, and two, you're able to then go back and start to retarget those people with a, with a lot of confidence. And so, you know, at the top of funnel, it, it is very broad. And, and when I say broad, I mean, it's broad. Like our, our audiences, the only segmentation that we, that we do is male and female. And then we'll keep it within our age demo that we know is our, is our hot age demo, but we're not segmenting by engaged shoppers. We're not segmenting by lifestyle. We're not segmenting by any of these segments. Um, the only time at the top of funnel level that we step outside of that very broad audience is when we do lookalike audiences. And so we'll model lookalike audiences off of past purchases and add to carts and, and initiated checkout. And we'll create, you know, a variety of different size lookalike audiences that we also go out and target in a very similar way. But oftentimes those audiences are just as large as, as our broad audiences, but just a little bit mm-hmm. more, a little bit more segmented. Got it. So I think then the the kind of the art and science of of of, uh, of all of this comes down to to the messaging, to the creative itself. So tell us more about that. Like once you made this transition to to go really broad, which sounds like you know tens of millions potentially uh, that you're targeting. Yeah. How do you refine your the messaging in your ads so that you are attracting the right eyeballs and not just having you know the wrong you know, prospects coming to click to watch and click on your ads? Yeah, absolutely. So at the end of the day, we've still, it's, it's not like we just 
said, oh, okay, look, Facebook can do a better job at advertising than we can. It's really, I guess, gone full circle into understanding who your customer, who your cohorts really are and what messages make them tick. So we definitely still know who our target audience is. We definitely have done the research to understand what makes those audiences tick. And we then convert that I, those thoughts and those ideas into meaningful creative that is one, it's eye-catching, two, it's engaging, and and three, it gets through the message that we want to get through. And I think that, you know, I guess the advertising and world the advertising world in general went from exactly that to hey, who can growth hack? That was a very, you know, popular word five years ago. Who can growth hack the most? Look, there's still ways to do it, but I think at the end of the day, most advertisers, most savvy advertisers that are looking to, you know, grow meaningful businesses at scale have been forced back into, I guess, what I would consider the the right way to market. And that's to bet to really understand your customer. Mm. Yeah, it's no longer about what levers you pull, right? It's about making sure that you take the the messaging that resonates. So when it comes to this, I think, you know, when 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 anyone out there or or when often when entrepreneurs are creating ads, especially for the first time, it's like a blank canvas, right? Where they're not sure what to what to write down. And it sounds like you have had a process at least of collecting or understanding your 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 customers and your audience. Tell us more about that. Like what are, what kind of recommendations or tips do you have for someone out there that feels like they don't have a great grasp yet of their audience and what kind of messaging would resonate? What what do you recommend they do to to get a better understanding of this? Test, A B test, and continue to refine your message. Um, you know, I think really my main my main advice would be to not start on Facebook. Um, don't just start, don't just open up business day one, no traffic and think that you're going to throw money at Facebook and see a bunch of success overnight. Uh, you know, a lot of people come to me and, and, and to my colleagues and say like, Hey, look, you guys are doing so great on Facebook. Uh, and really through digital advertising in general, how do, how do I replicate that? And, you know, when I hear that they have no traffic and they've had no customers to their store, either organically or through other activations, I turn them away from it. It's it's not smart to start there. But once you do know your customer, it's a very great place that you can scale um, almost infinitely. Got it. So when you when you were, or I guess when you give this recommendation to go organic first, like, is there, are there like kind of tactical things you could do on a day-to-day basis to just develop a stronger and stronger understanding of your customer? Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, I think that before you start any business, you should do a fair a fair amount of market research and look at your competitors and look at other brands that are in the space and that are successful in the space and just kind of understand what they're doing. Um, it's not to say that they're doing it 100% right, but it'll at least give you a kind of a jumping point. And then you can go and you can craft your own strategy kind of based around that. I, you know, everyone's lying to you if they say that they're not looking at their competitors and they're not looking at the 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 industry that they're in and and using that to kind of guide them either through innovation or through just a better understanding of of what that that market segment is really looking for but uh, i would you know i'd urge people to to do that market research and and to make sure that they understand the customer at least at a very basic level before jumping into the brand Got it. And you had mentioned something earlier about how when it when it comes down to the ads that you create, you guys are optimizing for conversions. And I think kind of begs a question of like that there are so many not so many, but there are different ways to optimize a like an ad set or a campaign. 
why would you ever choose anything other than optimization or optimizing for conversions? The easiest way to think about it is think about it as a retail store, which by the way, I oftentimes do. I do I I I do that very often. I think of our I think of our online store as a as a retail store because it's it's just traditionally what people are used to. Um, and so when you think about a retail store, you have the people that you have the people that walk by your store and look in the window and, and that's the people that are scrolling through Facebook, right? And then you have the people that walk in and they're, you know, they're browsing, they're a little bit more than a window shopper, but they have no intention of buying. And then you even have the people that go in and they start asking questions and they say, you know, how much is this? What kind of fabric is this made out of? Whatever, you know, based on whatever type of store they're in. Um, but again, they still have no in intentions of actually buying. And then you have the people that are going there with an intent to make a purchase. Obviously, Facebook's a little bit different because no one's necessarily scrolling through their Facebook with an intent to buy a product that they've never seen before. But Facebook still knows the type of people that will make a purchase. And so by by optimizing for purchase conver for conversion, no matter if you're looking to convert that person on their first visit or their 10th visit, you still want to drive traffic to your site that is of people that have an intent to make a purchase or that are comfortable making purchases online. And so that's where, you know, obviously Facebook can't just give us a huge segment of people that do that. But if you optimize for that, they themselves and their algorithms can optimize your campaigns to at least only go in front of people that have that intent. Hmm. So am I hearing that you're saying that you would never optimize for anything other than conversions? I would, there's one scenario where I will, and it's lead generation. And that's the only time that we typically do lead generation is if we're doing some sort of giveaway that we're putting paid behind, or we're looking to grow our, our email or SMS list. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now let's get back to the interview. Got it. Now you had mentioned as well that one of the things that you do is you partner with these kind of trusted voices, these trusted authorities in this space. Can yeah. you say more about this? Tell us about how that program works. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we have a few different ways we have, um, you know, our, our, I guess our athletes that are, that are with the brand that we, you know, use their name and likeness across our site, across our marketing initiatives. And we work with those people on two different fronts. One is amplification over their owned media channels. So whether that's their website, their YouTube channel, their, their, uh, their Facebook, um, or just through branding while they're competing in their event. Um, and then we also take the, that same messaging or similar messaging and we amplify it across our own medium. So our social media, our newsletter, our website, um, that's, that piece of it is really the validation piece. But then when we talk about driving awareness, utilizing those voices, one thing that we've had a lot of success with, and this ties back to social once again, um, this is starting to sound like a PSA for Facebook, but um, it's a great place to amplify those athletes' messages and a very organic way to reach people with a message that is not from the brand to start. Because I think a lot of people, when they hear a message through a brand, they're skeptical, right? They know that that brand mm -hmm. wants to sell them a product at the end of the day. But when they hear it from somebody that they either care about or it's somebody that's in a in a vertical that they care about, 
they're a lot more receptive to that message or to at least stopping and acknowledging that there is a message. And so we found a lot of success taking an athlete, pairing it with a message that is authentic to them and then amplifying that message across social media. Yeah, I definitely see the value in kind of creating this almost unbiased or at least less biased source uh, of marketing. I think yeah. one of the challenges that you might face here is that now you have a, you have less control right, right, over the the kind of messaging. I mean, ideally, your 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 brand ambassadors, these these trusted partners that you work with, all line up with your with your messaging from from the top of the funnel all the way to the bottom of the funnel. But do you find that it's sometimes harder to touch on certain points where you know that if you cover certain type of messaging, certain type of feature, benefit of the product, it would move the needle more, but you just haven't found a, a trusted voice or source that has said that themselves? Yeah, I mean, that, that brings up a really great point. And one of the things that we've really done well, as a, I think we've done well as a brand anyway, is... Our partnerships never start with us reaching out to somebody because we think that they're the right person for it. The only time that we'll do that is if somebody's maybe injured or something and it's truly just, hey, we think this product can help you. If it does, let us know. We'd love to get your feedback. And most of our relationships have started either by the athlete reaching out to us or us reaching out in that way. But it's never like, hey, we want to pay you X amount so that you can say exactly this. That's just not how we do business. But by making sure that we start first with people that are actual advocates of the brand, it makes that a lot easier because they understand the value and they're receptive to helping spread the messages that we would like to spread. And oftentimes they're coming up with the messages that resonate really well with their audience. And so I don't necessarily see that as a detriment. I see it as a value add to the business. And then to go beyond that, you know, I said that in the beginning of talking about this, I said that we work with a variety of different levels, I guess, of ambassadors. And so the next tier would be, you know, the people that we maybe not, we don't necessarily have like a hard bound relationship with them, but they are advocates of the brand. And we do work with them as like, as a true brand ambassador. And then below that, we have um, a ton and ton of loyal customers that are arguably our best advocates. And so we've set up a loyal a loyalty program, um, actually utilizing one of the apps on shop on the Shopify app store. It's called Loyalty Lion. Um, and that program's gone exceptionally well for us. So hats off to the guys at Loyalty Lion for for putting together a really awesome product. We've used quite a few different quite a few different loyalty programs in the past. And this is the one that's really stuck. Um, but yeah, so we empower our community to spread the word. And oftentimes, you know, when you change people's lives for the better, people that are maybe in chronic pain or have, you know, some nagging soreness or nagging injury, um, or they're just recovering from an injury in general, when you start to change people's lives, you'd be amazed at the amount of just natural support that you get. And so empowering those people and incentivizing those people to share their stories has been extremely effective for us. Got it. Can you say more about how you use this this app to 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 do all this? Like what well, you mentioned, you tried a bunch of different ones. Like what was it about this particular app that really um, allowed you to 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 give a a channel a way to to promote and encourage your your customers to to spread the message of, of your brand? Yeah, I think really one of the main things that I always look for in marketing initiatives is especially ones that require the attention of of a user or of a customer is they need to be simple, right? Simplicity allows people to easily buy into a program. It's actually very similar to why our product is as simple as it is. 
it, it just creates a, an easier adoption. And so Loyalty Lion really had a simple process and they were able to kind of bend and work with us to create kind of out of the box solutions. And so our product is app based. And so all of our users, anytime that they engage with the product are visiting our app. And so one of the things that we knew we wanted to do was we wanted to create a landing page, of course, on our site, but we wanted to be able to push people there from our app. And and so we've built in features within the app that encourage people to sign up for our loyalty program and to and to spread the word with their with their friends and family. And like I said, it's been extremely successful. And then, you know, the other piece of that is how do you reward these people? Um, we our, our product, we have somewhat of a razor blade model. So you you purchase the hardware and then you have pad replacements that are required after 25 to 30 uses. And so that creates a natural product for us to incentivize people with and really starts to dramatically impact our customer acquisition costs because it, you know, a free set of pads is a lot cheaper than it costs us to go out and um, acquire a customer on, on social media or through a partnership or something like that. Mm, makes sense. And one of the ways that one other way that that you uh, are able to use this this built in or not this built in, but this this customer base that you've grown is through these reviews. And I think you have you know over a thousand reviews through your different products. Tell us about how that happened. How how were you able to encourage and get people to leave reviews for the product? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the one of the biggest things that we've worked on at PowerDot would be our email marketing flows, and so. You know, obviously, we have kind of our our company newsletters um, that go out. These are like typically blogs that have educational content. But then we also have a lot of flows that we've built out, and we use Clavio as our ESP, um, which makes it super simple to do so. Um, but we have both pre uh, pre pre purchase flows and then post purchase flows. So after you make a purchase. Your experience with PowerDot and your experience with the engagement that you get from the brand, it doesn't stop there. So you get a series of emails that are both educational, but then also ask uh, you know, a variety of different things for you to do on behalf of the brand. One of those things is to leave um, in a, a review for us. And then we also, you know, go going back to the app, we also have a feature within the app that automatically after your first session will ask you to leave a review. And we've had a a very good adoption with that. So, you know, finding ways, I, I think the, the biggest lesson there, and obviously not everybody has an app, but the biggest lesson there is once somebody buys from you, they are arguably more valuable than anybody else to your business. And so, you know, it's, it's extremely important not to neglect those people because you've already got their money. Um, I would say if anything, it's time to double or triple down on the investment that you've made in that person to um, turn them from a first time customer into a loyal customer and then into a product advocate as well. Got it. Well, speaking of emails, you know, but even before they are a, a customer of yours, one thing I noticed was that when I went to the website was that there's a full page like takeover uh, for for email sign up. So this this must have been a this must have not been an easy decision to to make. Um, so tell us more about that. How did you guys decide to to go this approach for um, the landing page of your website to be so focused on email collection? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest challenges that we had is is the organic traffic that like. 
if we know we're driving somebody from an ad that's talking about pain relief, we know we can segment or funnel that person to a landing page that speaks specifically to pain relief. But because our product does so much for so many different people, we needed a way to really start to segment who those people were. And so um, we made the decision to to go to a full a full page takeover, but make it meaningful for the customer. So it's not just a full page takeover that says, hey, do you want 10% off of your next purchase or your first purchase? Gather or get it by signing up for our, for our newsletter. We wanted it to to have more meaning to that. So if you notice the first thing it does is it asks you kind of a use case question. Mm-hmm. What are you, what are you here for? What are you looking for? And by qualifying that person, we're then able to better understand who that customer is and push them to content that either through our newsletter or through our website or through our marketing. Um, because we've actually tied all of those questions back to our Facebook audiences as well. So once you, we're not only collecting website visitors, we're collecting website visitors that have engaged with any of those and we know who those people are. So we can tailor messages to them. And then we can also tailor uh, larger audiences or model larger audiences based off of those people um, going back to like the lookalike audiences. But yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot, it, it was scary. But one of the things that we do really well is we use Google Optimize to A-B test almost every decision that we make on the site. And I think that's something that a lot of people tend to overlook. People want to move so fast, they feel like they know it's right for their brand. And so they make a change on the site. And then two to three weeks down the road, they're like, man, why is it, why, why are things behaving different? And then you kind of lose track of what you changed and you don't know where to go back to, and you've just left yourself guessing. And so um, by using Google Optimize, we're able to A-B test those changes and you're able to know fairly accurately um, if that decision is the right one for your business. And so um, we did that with the the site takeover. And, and to be honest with you, the conversion optimization based off of that was outstanding. And so uh, it was definitely the right decision to make. And we've definitely, it's definitely here to stay um, so much so that we we actually look to expand upon that experience. Yeah, I think that the really key thing that you pointed out that I, I failed to mention was that you do ask about the use case first. It wasn't just to collect the email uh, address throughout the bat. You really wanted to know why people were here to to visit. And you, you're basically tagging them uh, for a specific use case, like for all your marketing channels. Yeah, exactly. So they get tagged within Clavio and then they also get added to a specific Facebook audience. And so we're able to go back. The Facebook audience happens whether or not you've actually submitted your email, as long as you're not blocking um, the pixel or the cookies. So yeah, we're able to segment in Facebook. And then as long as you, then the, obviously the next stage of the of the pop-up is kind of more, more of your traditional where there's an incentive to actually sign up for the email. Um, soon we'll also be adding, S- excuse me, soon we'll also be adding SMS to that as well. Um, which outside of email has has been established as one of our, our fastest growing marketing channels. Mm. So speaking of, um, well, let's start email first. You mentioned that the, the, there's a pre-purchase like uh, email series. Tell us about that. Like, what are some of the most important emails to send when you have someone that's joining as a lead that's not, not a customer yet? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most important thing is your first two emails are going to be the the most impactful emails on your entire flow. So making sure that those first two emails get your message across are, are the most important. And so typically, you know, if you're providing some sort of incentive, 
for signing up for your list, people want that right away. So we make sure that that first email in that segment has exactly what somebody had signed up for, um, whether that's, you know, a PDF document with some education or a discount or whatever the case may be, providing that to them immediately is, is crucial. And then the second one is just really starting to get your brand message across. That is specific in our case, because we are segmenting and we are getting that use case specific to whatever that person had signed up for. So that's why it's so important for us to understand that. Got it. And you mentioned SMS was a, was another channel that, that started to grow very fast. How are you collecting the, the, the phone numbers for that? Yeah, so we primarily use that um, for abandoned carts at the moment. And then we also have a, a list of people that we've collected in a similar fashion. So the really only the only collection that we get is at checkout. But because we've had such, such success with that program, um, we're looking at ways that we can expand upon it and create a similar experience that we have with with our email marketing. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the the key differences with email marketing is it's had year or decades really of, of experimentation and kind of best practices, which has evolved a bit. Uh, but for the most part, there have been best practices that have been applied. But with SMS, it's it's, it's pretty new territory, for, especially for a lot of e-commerce brands. What have you learned so far about this transition? Because I think when someone, most people will have an email list and when they decide to add SMS, they kind of just try to transfer a lot of the practices over from email to SMS, but doesn't seem to work out as well. So when you are adding SMS into your, your marketing uh, channel, what's uh, what, what are some kind of key differences between that and, and email? Yeah, I mean, look, I think you can, I, I think you can, in today's world, you can get away with sending a lot of emails, but with SMS, you're, you're being a lot more intrusive on that person's life, um, going directly into their you know, into their phone, into their messages on their phone, where typically that's not a space that brands have lived, right? That's for your friends and family. So being respectable about how you, how you go about that, how often you're sending messages, what time of day you're sending the messages, and then also crafting those messages in a way that feels like it's a text message. You definitely don't want to send um, an SMS message that has some long form copy in it. It's get your point across, um, do it in a way that's meaningful to the customer, and then be respectful about how you're collecting those phone numbers and how you're sending out those messages as well. Mm. Now, you mentioned that one of the first uh, areas of focus that you wanted to, to pay attention to when you first joined three years ago was around optimization for conversion rate. Do you remember what some of those changes were back then? Like, are there still, are those kind of the changes that you would still recommend uh, other store owners to, to take a look at when it comes to optimizing their website for conversions? Yeah. I mean, obviously like optimizing for conversion is probably the, I mean, it is the most important thing that you can do outside of then driving traffic um, to be converted. So uh, you know, we've done a variety of different things. It, it, it really starts with with messaging and site structure. So how are you funneling people in the least amount of clicks from point A to point B to, to a purchase? And so we've put a lot of emphasis on that. Simple, again, going back to simplifying, um, just simplifying the site as much as possible, but then also creating those unique funnels for those different segments based off of what people are actually looking for and making sure that at every scenario, you're going from point A to point B to a purchase, right? 
Yeah, it makes sense. Now, one other thing I noticed on the website was uh, the live chat feature, which I think is powered by the Gorgeous uh, app. Tell us about that. Like, is that often used by or utilized by the traffic that comes to the website? Yeah, totally. So um, we're actually a pretty small team here at PowerDot. There's in the e-com department, um, we have four people. Well, we have three people actually focused on e-com. Um, and then we have a content creator and then we have two customer service reps and those customer service reps are one of them is exclusively on live chat throughout the entire day. Um, and it, there's definitely a lot of usage through that, especially again, going back to the education on the product, it provides a very easy way for customers to quickly get the answers that they're maybe not finding on the site and get pointed in the right direction. Uh, so we actually see a decent amount of revenue being generated. And what's cool about Gorgeous is it tracks all that. It tracks the interactions that you've had and how those have converted. So um, yeah, we see a significant uptick in customers that, that interact with the Gorgeous app. Awesome. So PowerDot.com is the website. I want to, I'll leave you this last question that's looking into the future. So one thing you mentioned to us was that global channel expansion distribution was a focus for, for the business. What's in store for the future of PowerDot in this realm? Yeah, definitely. Uh, like I said, we started in the U.S. Um, and we've since expanded our direct-to-consumer that we actually own and operate entirely from the U.S. Um, we we now are on a Shopify Plus account and we've expanded into Europe, all of Europe, U.K. and Canada. Um, and we can we, we look to continue to to expand um, now into the Middle East and Australia uh, as well. So yeah, continued international expansion. Um, and a continued focus on increasing conversion and, and driving more and more awareness for the brand. Awesome. So again, PowerDot.com. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience, Chase. Thank you, Felix. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.